Hey guys, and welcome to Hunting Land, presented by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. If you'd like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is the podcast for you. This week's show is brought to you by Patanas Defense, Masters of Darkness, is proud to offer the PD Pro line of night vision systems. The PD Pro series is the world's smallest and lightest night vision goggles, built around the Fatana 16mm filmless 4G image intensifier tubes and their hybrid filmless 18mm image intensifier tubes. These ultralight, ultra-compact night vision systems deliver the cleanest image, best resolution, smallest, most transparent halo, and best overall performance and function of any night vision system available. The PD Pro line consists of the PD Pro M 16mm monocular, the PD Pro B 16mm binocular, and the PD Pro Q panoramic night vision system. Patanus Defense, Masters of Darkness. And also brought to you by Alabama Farmers Co-op. From backyard gardening to large-scale farming and everything in between, your local co-op has what you need to be successful. Since 1936, Alabama Farmers Cooperative has provided high-quality products, and friendly service to community members and local farmers. With over 60 locations to serve you and 85 years of experience, you can count on the co-op. For more information and to find a location near you, visit www.alafarm.com. I'm your host, Joe Bayer, here today with my co-host, Butch Theory. And, uh, you know, Butch, I'm I'm getting ready to head up to my place this weekend, and my helper quit on me. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. Yeah. You got to watch out for that. You know, like, you know anything about that? Yeah, man. Sorry. I got, uh, got to go, got to go handle some stuff on my place. I was down to help you. I was down to help you. This is going to be irrelevant. Both going to be in the woods this weekend. That's right. This is going to be a relevant topic for both of us this weekend. But you know, the thing that motivates me as a guy who has dealt with tick illnesses and tick diseases, uh, personally, you are also one of those people. Unfortunately, I am in that club. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to get it again. That's a fact. However, I've got two young children and a wife that are now coming to the camp with me to keep me company while we're out doing some work this weekend. And I definitely, definitely want to make sure that they are taken care of and this is not going to be an issue for them. So today we're going to be talking about everything really that you need to know to avoid ticks in the first place and repel them if they do get on you and then what to do if if you do find a tick on you. It's going to be a really great show uh, to help us cover this topic in depth we are going to be interviewing renowned tick expert dr thomas mather dr mather welcome to hunt land and first off tell everybody where you are and what makes you a tick expert i'm a professor of public health entomology at the university of rhode island i've been here since 1992 but before that i was a postdoctoral fellow and a research fellow at the harvard school of public health so I've actually been doing tick studies since 1983. Um, I've kind of been my thing, I guess. And so I feel like I've had a lot of opportunities to really address the issue. I mean, when I first started in 1983, Lyme disease was just sort of this newfangled thing that people were just really learning about. They didn't even identify what caused the symptoms of Lyme disease until about 1981 or so. So I was fresh on that when I started. And what was good about that is that all of the questions, you know, people sort of knew about some ticks, but then there was this black-legged tick that, you know, everybody was talking about associated with Lyme disease. And a lot of the questions that we had about 
ticks um, didn't necessarily reflect what the black-legged ticks were doing. And so you could pretty much just start a fresh slate and do all of the experiments and all of the studies, biological studies about ticks and everything, all focused on this new, newly sort of, it was, you know, it was, has always been around. It just seemed to be growing in its abundance. And so that is made the first early years kind of easy because anything you thought of was a good question to try and then research and get answers for. Yeah. And then when we would go out and listen to people, you know, they would, they would also ask good question. You'd maybe be out with people and they'd ask you something like, well, what are they, where do they get the, the disease germs from? And no, oh, that's a good question. Let's go figure that out. And so we designed experiments to sort of, you know, test, all right, where do these, how are these ticks becoming infected? And that would tell us maybe a lot about habitat where people would be at risk and everything. So it just grew from there. And I think I, I was truly blessed with the opportunity to come in at the time that I did and then have sort of the opportunities that I had to, to sort of answer a lot of those early questions that just still needed to be known. Well, I know we appreciate having you here today and trying to distill your nearly 40 years of knowledge on the subject down into a podcast would be very tough. So the things that I really want to focus on today are how we can prevent tick bites and, and care for them when they happen, of course, uh, hopefully prevent them from happening in the first place. You're talking about Lyme disease. I'm I'm hopefully never going to contract Lyme disease. I think that's one of the more scary illnesses that are out there in terms of tick-borne illnesses. I have had Rocky Mountain spotted fever before, and it wasn't much fun. Definitely pretty scary, uh, especially when didn't know what I had to begin with. And I've got some friends that have come down with alpha-gal, uh, you know, where they're now dealing with uh, protein sensitivities. And uh, man, if, if you take away my red meat, I'm going to be pretty, pretty upset. So, you know, talking about, I mean, there's those three. What kind of tick-borne illnesses are out there, uh, maybe that, you know, th those are three, obviously. Um, and, and, and are they on the rise? Is this becoming, is this an increasing problem? Yeah, so tick-borne diseases generally are on the rise because tick populations seem to be increasing. In particular, there's, think about the fact that the tick-borne diseases need two elements. They need ticks and the hosts that make the ticks infected, but they also then, in order to become a disease in the human and pet population, they need humans and pets to bite and get sick. And so the thing that really is happening these days, increasingly, that's driving the public health importance of tick-borne diseases in general, is that these ticks are getting closer and closer to where larger concentrations of people are. So in the 1980s and 90s, you know, we talked about these tick-borne diseases, in particular Lyme disease, on the rise in the suburbs. Now we're talking about them being in peri-urban settings. Why is that? Well, because the hosts that are responsible for some of these ticks are moving increasingly into higher human density settings. So, I mean, it's not uncommon up in in our area to see deer running down the main street. And you know, deer are the principal reproductive host for not just black-legged ticks, but also Lone Star ticks, Gulf Coast ticks. You know, so those ticks are all increasing because deer populations are increasing. You know, a lot of my tick expert friends, you know, they all and 
the media, it, it always goes to climate change. And for most people, when you think about climate change, they think about warming. And so they have this maybe slightly mis misunderstanding of what's driving this, that, oh, well, they can move further north because it's getting warm further north. But that's not really true. The, one of the biggest trends right now is the black-legged ticks. There are sort of two genetically you know, slightly different groups. One we call the northern group and the southern group. That because the southern group is adapted to hotter temperatures and they all are sensitive to low humidity, they desiccate pretty easily. And so the southern black-legged tick nymphs, that is the size of a poppy seed, actually go, you know, a, a few centimeters lower in the leaf pack. And by doing that, they almost never get on to people because, you know, they're not up closer to the top of the leaf pack. So you're basically walking over them in the south. But in the north, they are able to get a little bit higher in the leaf pack. And so they're, you know, people are more likely to encounter them. And so there's a big difference. But we're seeing that northern group moving southward, not northward. We, oh, we see it maybe moving into Canada a little bit too. But the southward movement is what's interesting along the Appalachian Ridge. Um, so now you look at Western Virginia and Western North Carolina and Eastern Tennessee um, and Eastern Kentucky, those places are seeing what is really a, a problem because the Southern group of ticks by questing a little bit lower in the leaf pack, the hosts that they encounter are hosts that are more likely to be at that level in the strata of the, of the forest, which are skinks and animals and things like that. And those, animals don't infect ticks with Lyme disease germs, for instance. But mice and chipmunks and things like that do infect ticks with germs, and they're encountering the ticks slightly higher on the forest floor, right? And so there's this huge difference. I mean, when you, if you were to take 100 ticks from eastern Virginia and test them for Lyme disease spirochetes, maybe the infection rate would be five and a hundred would be positive. If you were to do that same thing in Rhode Island, 25 to 30% wow. of them are infected. So these little nuances are really important in understanding what your risk is and why it's potentially different. Now, that said, one tick can change your life, right? And so everybody right. would like to say, all right, well, I want to make sure that that doesn't happen. So just asking why they're on the rise, I think is really a good question and one that probably has multiple reasons, but it's partly because of the habituation and adaptation of the principal reproductive host, which are white-tailed deer, moving into areas where they had no, hadn't been for a long time, like my son's backyard outside of Boston. I mean, the closest place that a, for me, a self-respecting deer would find habit, habitat is about a half a mile from his house. All of the houses have little, you know, quarter to third acre yards, all encased around a, a chain link fence. But his security camera shows that he occasionally gets deer in his backyard. The only way that deer could have gotten there was down the sidewalk and then jumping over his fence. Well, you know. that's a lot to unpack there, but the important takeaway <laughs> for me is that we need to kill more deer, which is a, you know, <laughs> that's a good thing a, for us. a good thing, you know, for us. But the other thing I'm hearing, you know, here in the South, when somebody moves into the area from up North and doesn't leave, 
doesn't move back up north. We call them a damn Yankee is actually <laughs> what we call them. So it's a, it's a Yankee that comes down and stays. And it sounds like ticks are becoming damn Yankees. We've got these ticks that are coming in from up north and they are carrying Lyme disease and carrying these tick-borne illnesses at a much higher prevalence is what it sounds like to me. So therein lies the question of how do we identify what types of ticks carry these illnesses? Because like you just said, these Southern ticks uh, are carrying it at a much lower prevalence, say, than these Northern ticks. So what, what types of ticks carry, uh, say, Lyme, you know, and what's a good way for somebody to research that if they do get bitten? Yeah, so that's a great question. It's often where I start with people because tick identification skills are abysmal in America, to be honest. Um, a tick is a tick to most people, and it, the, the, the differences seem like they wouldn't be important. It just sucks blood. They're all just, you know, blood suckers. Well, but it turns out that it is important to know which type of tick bit you. And the reason for that is that different germs infect different ticks. Part of it is sort of in their own biology, like the hosts that they feed on. But in some cases, there's just a, you know, there are things that just keep, for instance, American dog ticks from becoming. We've done experiments where we fed the larval stage of American dog ticks and black-legged ticks and Lone Star ticks on the exact same Lyme disease infected mouse. And only the black-legged ticks will end up being able to transmit an infection in its next stage called the nymph. That, that there's just, the germ just doesn't really take hold. I, you know, there's this sort of principle that I teach my students called I think it's the universal principle of life and it's best thought of as a lock and key mechanism. We've just gone through this whole COVID thing. So people have a little bit better appreciation about susceptibility and who's going to be infected and what makes them more susceptible and everything. And that's exactly the same thing, whether you're talking about tick-borne diseases that are getting into the tick, we call it the tick vector, that this lock and key, that somehow the germ just doesn't have the right key to unlock the ability to infect certain ticks, but it has the right key to infect other types of ticks. So when you think about the three most common ticks that people encounter in the United States, black-legged ticks, Lone Star ticks, and American dog ticks, you, you can think about them as really transmitting their own suite of germs. And so you have to kind of start with that and say, all right, well, so the germs that you could get from a black-legged tick are the Lyme disease bacteria, one called Babesia microti, which is a malaria-like parasite, Anaplasma phagocytophilum, which is a white blood cell parasite. Then they also more rarely transmit a relapsing fever, Borrelia, as well as something called the Powassan virus. So five germs, and actually they could all be in one tick, and you could get them all five. Most times wow. people get two. And, you know, anytime that there's a co-infection, um, which is the word, usually the disease symptoms are a little bit worse. And so avoiding co-infections would be great. But the only way to do that where, you know, you have the high prevalence of all of those germs in the tick population is to just not, not get bitten. And we can talk about that a little bit, a little bit later. But then you have to, you know, if you had written this on a whiteboard, you'd have to erase the entire whiteboard when you talk about American dog ticks, 
because they don't become infected with any of those germs. Hmm. Instead, they have their own suite of germs, like your Rocky Mountain spotted fever, for instance, or a host of other spotted fever rickettsia. That's the fancy word for that type of bacteria that are less pathogenic. And then they also can carry and transmit a germ called tularemia. It's a bacteria. Sometimes people know that as rabbit fever. And so that's another way people can get tularemia by skinning infected rabbits, but they can also get it from a tick bite, but a tick bite being specifically an American dog tick bite. And then when you come to Lone Star ticks, you got to erase that whiteboard again because they have their own germs as well. So they carry something called human and canine ehrlichiosis, which is also a white blood cell parasite, different from anaplasmosis. And they also are in some cases associated, the bite of Lone Star ticks are associated with this alpha-gal, which you've already mentioned, which is an allergy that develops to proteins that are in the tick saliva. So it's not a germ at all. And there's no way you could vaccinate any, anybody for that. You would, it's just a, a sensitization basically that develops an allergy that is only in certain people. So it's a little like, I think of it as a peanut allergy, for instance, the majority of people don't have peanut allergies and the majority of people don't get red meat allergy either um, from the bite of a, a lone star tick, which is a good thing because as you guys are both living in high lone star tick areas, if everybody that got bitten by a lone star tick, I think McDonald's would have to go out of business. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> I think so as we, well. That sounds terrible for sure. So, yeah. I mean, like you say, understanding what type of tick has bitten you and what germs they possibly carry. I mean, right there, if I know I've been bitten by, say, a lone star tick, I don't really have to worry about Lyme. So that should ease a lot of people's fears and ease a lot of anxiety about that. But at the end of the day, like they're all carrying something it looks like, or a lot of them carry a lot of different things. I'm sure there's probably even some ticks that are maybe completely harmless. And that's a good point because that's, you know, the, we call it the tick infection rate. And so that's the proportion of ticks that are carrying one or more germs. And with black-legged ticks here in the North, you know, when you start talking about the adult stage of those, we have infection rates as high as 70 and 80%, the Lyme disease germ or one of those other germs. But in the South, that same type of tick, maybe you're talking about five or 10% infection rate. And so the difference is a little like a crapshoot almost, right? It's like, you're certainly going to more likely to get infected by here in the north than you would be in the south. But then when you turn that around, the Lone Star ticks in the south are far more likely to transmit the ehrlichiosis germ than they are here in the north. Now, those Lone Star ticks are moving. They've now thoroughly infested Rhode Island, which has been a, a sad thing for me because it's just another tick I have to sort out, right? But, <laughs> That's right. Exactly and it's a, different, right. it's a different problem because you know, I think ESPN should have tick races or something and people could bet on, bet on tick races. And you know, my, from my standpoint, you should always bet on the Lone Star tickets by far and away, probably four or five times faster at climbing a host and then getting into places that you're not going to look 
before they bite than a black legged tick, for instance. And so there's differences about these ticks and that's why it's so important to be able to identify them and to identify the habitat. So the black legged ticks, they don't wanna dry out. They're the wimpiest of all of the ticks. And so they're gonna be in the shade. Lone Star ticks are a little bit more aggressive, actually perhaps you could say a lot more aggressive and they'll move out into the open. And the American dog ticks, for the most part, they don't mind a, a nice open sunny field, right? And so different types of ticks and different habitats, you could do a lot to protect yourself against a particular tick-borne disease just by knowing the habitats of those ticks. Now, is it 100%? No, there's always going to be the odd American dog tick in the edge of the forest or the weird black-legged tick that has moved out into the field for some reason. But um, for the most part, it's pretty pretty true. And, and the way we know this is from just extensive sampling in different habitats, sort of segmenting landscapes and sampling for ticks and seeing wh where do you get them. I, mean, I was in a yard yesterday and the lady was like, she was inclined to wanting to spray, but she only wanted to spray a natural product. And I told her I didn't think that most of those were ready for prime time. And so she was, I said, but you could do a lot just by staying three feet away from that edge right there. That's where I got all the ticks. And she said, oh, well, that's not hard. I'll just try to remember to stay three feet away from that edge and I won't get the ticks. And because I flagged their whole yard. And, you know, when I got to about the three feet away from the edge, that's when I started picking up black legged ticks. So just knowing things like that about the biology of ticks can help people a lot. So when we talk about walking, taking a walk in the woods, you know, most people are looking at the trail and be like, oh, this is, this is going to be a great thing. And they just start walking in the woods. And we want people to walk in the middle of the trails because the ticks that could bite them, in particular, the black-legged ticks, even the American dog ticks and Lone Star ticks are generally on the edges, but certainly the black-legged ticks are on the edges of that trail, whether the trail is, you know, just a footpath or it's, you know, five feet wide. The more you stay in the middle, the more likely you will avoid the ticks that are on the overhanging vegetation on the side. And so that'd be good to know, right? And if somebody, Absolutely. If, if no one ever told you that, you would just be like, I mean, I've watched people for hours, you know, go on walks and they're, you know, they're just talking and enjoying their time and they're not even thinking about ticks. And then they're sort of bumping off of the edge of each side of the trail without, you know, and if they're not doing it, their pet is. And mm, so right. it's like, yeah get it either way. You can just stay kind of in the middle. You're going to be a lot safer from tick-borne diseases than if you are, you know, kind of all over the place, you know, for hunters, like your bushwhackers, yeah, there have to be other strategies for you there. But for the common, you know, person that's walking their dog down a, a you know, a favorite park path, staying in the middle of the trail is one really simple thing that people can do. Great. That sounds like a great way to avoid it. Thank you for that knowledge. So it sounds like that I unfortunately had a encounter with a black legged tick from what I can understand, Joe, I, uh, I have been infected with Lyme disease and I don't know much about it. So I'd like to pick your brain on that a little bit, but let's go back to identifying the ticks a little bit. Luckily I didn't get any other things with that. It sounds like I could have got up to five. So hopefully, uh, hopefully that won't happen to anybody, but I, I'm I not going to say that you don't have any other problems as right. of yet. I'm yeah, we don't know. Sure. They're all from, they haven't been brought to light. That's right. Right. Well, so how can we go about identifying a black black-legged tick and a Lone Star. What do we need to look for and are there resources for that? Well, there definitely are resources on our Tick Encounter website. Um, one of our most popular tools is called Tick Spotters. Tick Spotters is a crowdsourced tick survey, but it's really a, a 
a survey and a response program. And so we, for the last four years, we've been doing it for eight years. For the last four years, we've been able to, you know, find some economy of scale and we can get back to pretty much everybody within 24 hours. We learned early on when we didn't get back to people that they kind of forgot about their tick if they didn't hear back from us within a couple of days. But getting back to people right away is going to be the best opportunity for us to engage them with other strategies for protecting them against ticks the next time as well. And so we strive really hard to get back to people right away. And not only do you get an ID confirmation, but you also get sort of a tailored response. So now we're talking about this tick, right? Not just all ticks, we're talking about this kind of tick. And we can tell you, you know, specifically what their season is, what they're likely risk of being infected with what kind of germs is. And that's going to be all over the place. So that, you know, the American dog tick from um, Alabama is going to have much lower infection rate than the black-legged tick from, you know, Westchester County, New York, for instance. And so this kind of tailored information, I think, also helps people get a, a good start on building their tick knowledge. A lot of what we've learned is that the details matter. And um, if we're just, you know, listening to a podcast, but we don't go out and practice this right away, for instance, so I've just heard a lot of great details, but it doesn't stick with me. If I, if they don't practice, like, okay, I'm listening to Butch and Joe, I'm going to go walk down the middle of the trail. And that's going to imprint on them, you know, because the people walking the other direction are busy picking the ticks off because they were walking along the edge. Okay. So now you're thinking to yourself, ah, I did it right. Right. And so now that's going to stick with you and those details. So if you, the more you practice it, the more likely you are going to be safe. And so we've been looking for ways, we call it our just-in-time learning opportunities to try and get people to learn something when it's relevant to them. So, you know, it'd be like Alexa, but we can't plug it in in the woods necessarily, right? That's right. And, you know, but we have a QR code system now that, you know, if people would see the QR code, they can scan it and they can see, all right, well, if they're taking a hike on a trail, then it's going to tell you three things that you can do right now. So a lot of times signs will say, stay on the trail. It doesn't say stay in the middle of the trail, but it, then it says wear light colored clothing. And you look down, drove 20 minutes to get there. And now you're, you know, you packed the kids in the car or whatever, and you look down and everybody's wearing blue jeans. Ah, crap. <laughs> you know, it's not like you have a change of clothes or it says apply repellent. It doesn't say what kind of repellent, doesn't say where to apply. It just says apply repellent. It assumes that people know something about protecting themselves against ticks. You're feeling your pockets. Ah, shoot, I didn't apply the repellent. All right, so now you're kind of screwed. But if the QR code says, but wait, if you walk down the middle of the trail and tuck your shirt into your pants to keep the ticks from crawling up underneath your shirt tail, and when you, you can look at this tick finder map to find out what you should be looking for in this region, at this time of year. So all of a sudden, you, if you do that, you see, oh, well, this time of year, I'm looking for something the size of a poppy seed in Rhode Island walking down this trail. That's going to be a different level of care that I need to look than if it was a large American dog tick. So it helps guide you know, three actions that you can take that doesn't matter if you're wearing dark clothes and have to drive home to get the repellent or something like that. And so that's kind of just in time. The same thing, we're working on a 
something that would provide a QR right on your dog, you know, it'd be like tattooing them, but, um, (laughs) you know, so the first thing that a person with a dog is going to come when they come into this whole tick encounter realm is they probably just found a tick on their dog. All right. And what's their first question? Wonder what kind of tick it is. All right. Scan that QR code. And the first thing that will come up will be, hey, you can use our tick spotters program to find out what kind of ticket is. And if you don't want to wait, you can try and look at these pictures and see what kind of ticket is as well. And so we're we're really trying to work on, you know, sort of a next generation education of just in time learning so that people can practice it. And that when they've practiced it, then hopefully it's the details stick with them just a little bit better. So talking about the tick spotter a little bit more, is there an easy way for a, you know, a layman like us to tell a difference in a black-legged tick, the Lone Star and the American dog tick? Or is it just better just to go ahead and send the tick spotter? No. So if you're talking about the adult stage, this is always, you know, it's time for a tick anatomy lesson. So there's the head that people call, and that includes sort of the mouth parts, the mouth part that is the one that sticks into you is called the hypostome, but it's shielded, you know, protected by two things called palps and the palps sort of fold back when the tick sticks the hypostome into the skin. And then right behind that, there's something that some people call a shield or a plate or something. It's technical name is scutum. And this scutum then is unique to the types of ticks. And the nice thing about the scutum on a female tick and a male tick, they don't change in size as the tick gets bigger, it always stays the same. And so it has two of them have patterns with pigment. The American dog tick has sort of a diffuse white look to it. The Lone Star tick has a very discreet little white spot on the back end of the scutum. And then the black-legged tick scutum is just black, all plain black. And then the other tick that we, you know, probably in fourth place in terms of people encounter, depending on where you are, is one called the brown dog tick. Now, you would argue, well, that's confusing because that tick on my dog was also brown. The American dog tick is a brown tick too, but the brown dog tick scutum is also plain. But so you wouldn't get confused between the black-legged tick and the brown dog tick with two unpigmented plain scutums. The brown dog tick has triangular mouth parts and the black-legged tick has long straight mouth parts. And so if you combine just two little features, you can be a tick expert just like that. And it doesn't matter if the tick has been attached and feeding for three or five days or has just recently attached, just look at the scutum. All right, guys, let's take a quick break. Don't forget about our sponsors and make sure you support them when you're out in the marketplace. Boaters List. Boaters List is your new reliable and fast resource designed to link everyone to everything on the water. If you run a boat, you know how difficult it can be to find the right company for the task at hand. Boaters List makes this easy and easy to find the service you are looking for. Locate anything from fuel docks to service repairs or rentals of large yachts all the way down to paddle boards and all things in between. Boaterslist.com will always strive to make it better on the water. And also, Great Days Outdoors Magazine. If you hunt or fish in the deep south, you know that it's different down here. Spawning seasons, patterns, and food sources are not the same as other areas of the country. At Great Days Outdoors Magazine, southern outdoors writers pick the brains of the best southern hunters and anglers to give you the best how-to, where-to, and when-to articles, along with so much more. 
Pick up a Great Days Outdoors magazine subscription and become a better Southern outdoorsman. Great Days Outdoors magazine can be found at your local Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, Tractor Supply Company, Rural King, Bass Pro Shops, Academy Sports & Outdoors, or you can save and buy online at greatdaysoutdoors.com. That tick spotters is going to be valuable for me because like, if I had a tick on me right now, I think I'd feel like I knew I would know what to do to identify it. But the reality of the situation is, like you said, this may happen two months from now or two weeks from now or two years from now. And I've forgotten forgotten everything you said, unfortunately. But being able to go back to that and and identify that tick is going to be important for your peace of mind, but also for how you want to, you know, care for that tick bite. How to move forward, Right. You know, and, and be looking for the signs and symptoms of some of these different uh, illnesses that they carry. So, you know, you talked about some really good practices for avoiding ticks, not just with habitat, but also with the way you traverse habitat and the types of clothing you wear and the way you wear your clothing. I mean, everybody laughs at me because while I'm out in the woods working, I've got my pants tucked into my boots <laughs> and they're like, why are you doing that? Well, tick bite. <laughs> so yep. a lot of those things are great, but then, you know, you mentioned it repellents and, you know, when I think about, I've got a four-year-old, I've got a one-year-old, they are not going to listen to me if I say, Hey, don't go over by the edge over there, <laughs> you know, or don't go play in the dirt. They're going to get down. So I really want to have repellents that are on them, on their clothing, to hopefully just prevent ticks from getting on them in the first place. So if we're talking about repellents, first off, how do they actually work? Are they killing the tick or are they just repelling the tick? Most repellents, just thinking about how best to answer this, um, most repellents for ticks are causing them to fall off by sort of burning their feet. And so that only is going to, they're only going to do that when they're freshly applied. And so if you're planning a day's outing, you may have to, for most repellents, including the ones that have DEET or picaridin or eucalyptus oil or something, those all have to be reapplied probably less than an hour. <laughs> and that's kind oh, wow. of in it, it, to, to be effective because the, the effect really dries out, you know, for other blood-sucking arthropods, and this is repellents work differently there, that mosquitoes are homing in on you, for instance, and they have receptors in their antennae and they, those receptors kind of get blocked, then mosquitoes kind of lose their navigational tools to find their host. And so that's how these same repellents work, but ticks don't find their hosts that way. And so it's really another important thing to know the difference just because they suck on blood doesn't mean they're going to work the same way. And so they, they latch on and once they're on, you know, they are going to try and bite whether you, the only thing that would keep them from doing that is if it was burning their feet and then they would, you know, they have eight legs and they're lifting them, you know, instead of one at a time, they're lifting five or six of them at a time and then they fall off. But repellent that we like the best for ticks and it has a longer lasting effect, much longer lasting effect is permethrin and in particular permethrin applied to clothing, um, whether it's your shoes, shoes and socks, pants, even your shirt, your gear, for instance, is another, another thing because that is an insecticide. And it with even the shortest, almost the shortest exposure, 10, 15 seconds, that the ticks will fall off because it's burning their feet, but also they're starting to already be a little bit disoriented, a little like maybe 
a few too many beers at the bar. Um, they kind of get all like tipsy and everything. And so then they, you know, as you're continuing to move through the brush or something they they're not holding on as well as they used to. So they fall off. But when we've done experiments and put those falling off ticks into bottles, um, generally speaking, they're dead within about an hour because of the, you know, the it, permethrin then sort of affects the, the nervous conduction in the tick and causes them to die like a lot of insecticides do work that way. And the nice thing about the permethrin when it's formulated appropriately and applied to clothing is that it dries onto the clothing and it sticks and it sticks and can last depending on the, how it's been applied. It can last a short period of time. Like I think you're talking about spraying your spraying your pants inside and out. And maybe the manufacturers say it can go through the laundry six times. I'd probably err on, you know, at least four times, maybe it would be okay. You know, because all of that, the variable is how much have you already brushed off of this chemical um, just through natural wear? How much water has gone into the washing machine? How, you know, how right. vigorous what has it been agitating? What chemical are you using in the yeah, washing machine? The, the I mean, water, sure all the, those the detergent, the enzymes in the detergent, you know, so there's a lot of variables that can affect that. So being on the, airing on the safe side, if you're buying clothing only repellent and spraying it on yourself, but you can also buy clothing that's already been pre-treated using commercial methods of, you know, special formulations that are then you know, treated in an appropriate way and dried into the fabric. And that causes it to last a lot longer. So from my standpoint, that's probably the most cost-effective way. One company that does that, Insect Shield, um, has been in this space doing this for many years. I don't even know how many years. I've known about them for 20 years. And so, you know, they, they have a good handle on, on all of this. And they, thinking about it, they used to treat clothing for the military. You know, every deployed soldier gets permethrin-treated clothing. And so it's not something that's unusual, but there's, you know, there's some pushback because it's a synthetic insecticide. But, you know, when it's dried onto the clothing, it's, it's pretty, EPA doesn't like people to say safe, but I would argue that it is safe. And, you know, for hunters, they're, a lot of times they're concerned, oh, but the scent's going to give me away. It turns out that it doesn't do that. There are even companies that make, you know, hunting camo that's already pre-treated as well. So right. you know, it's, it's not, not really an issue. Sounds like a way to go. Yeah, I can definitely sing the praises of permethrin specifically. I've tried a lot of different things and permethrin applied to clothing has done a great job of keeping ticks off of me and chiggers. I'm one of those people that just gets bit by chiggers more than the person next to me for whatever reason. And it does a really good job of keeping both of those off of me. And then, you know, it's interesting, you're talking about mosquitoes and how they kind of home in on you. Mm -hmm. And what I've noticed about that is like, I'll be walking through the woods and mosquitoes aren't bothering me, but the minute I stop, all of a sudden mosquitoes are around me. And I tell you what, Ever since I've gone to using a thermocell, which has a permethrin pad that I guess you would say is aerosolized. I don't know if that's the right term, but it's, has, it's heated and it's permethrin in that pad. And that is then emitted out into the air. It completely repels mosquitoes. So I definitely believe in permethrin. And you mentioned putting it on your clothing. 
I've got two young children and, you know, I want to protect them, of course, as more than I want to protect myself. Thinking about that, I am very cautious about the kind of things I put on their skin. Permethrin's not really meant to be put on the skin and, and doesn't the skin just render it ineffective almost immediately? Is that, isn't that how permethrin interacts with the human skin? We've done studies that show that people wearing, like outdoor workers wearing treated clothing, permethrin treated clothing, we've looked at in their urine, the metabolites of permethrin, and they're no higher in people that wear clothing for work that is treated with permethrin than the general population. Permethrin is a, one of the most common agricultural chemicals. So when we think about things that we eat and things that we touch, I mean, we're exposed to permethrin anyway, and the, it doesn't really penetrate skin very well. So the absorption through skin, even if you're sweaty or something like that, you would think, oh, that's not good, right? But one of these studies we did in partner with a partner in North Carolina where they would be sweating a lot more in their clothing in the summertime, and there was no greater effect or exposure. And so we learned as we were trying to recruit patients for this or subjects for this study that there's a lot of pushback, though. There's a lot of misunderstanding of synthetic chemicals in general. I mean, they don't get a good rap for sure, but this is not something that is a real problem for most people. I mean, yeah, there's going to be a few, some people that have, you know, chemical sensitivities or something like that. But for the for most people, once it's stuck to the clothing, um, it's going to wear off, but it's not going to absorb through your skin and, you know, become a, a, a major problem. So I think you've done a great job, like Joe said, of teaching us a ways to avoid, and especially the uh, clothing treated, you know, with permethrin, that seems like the way to go. Say we do get a bite and we find a tick that's, you know, he's on us, he's bitten us, the head's buried. What's the next best move for us to do? Well, every outsider should have two things that they have available to them when they're outside. And that is a pointy tweezer, and it needs to be a pointy tweezer. Think about picking up something the size of a poppy seed that's attached to your skin. If you squeeze the back end of that, just think about ticks as a sack of germs. Unfortunately, that sack of germs is stuck to you with a straw. Um, that, that germ, just think, think of what happens when you squeeze the back end of your toothpaste tube. Stuff comes out, right? And so if you squeeze the sack of germs, call it a tick, and it's stuck to your skin, stuff's going to come out. And so it's never been a good idea, but the stuff is in the back end of the tick. And the hydraulics are that if your tweezers can be right at the skin surface and only at the skin surface, then all the stuff goes backwards into the sack of germs rather than down the straw. So that's really the first tool that people need. And they're great, readily available pointy tweezers. One called Tiki's tweezer is, is a really nice dual functioning. It has a slotted side for larger ticks or ticks that are like on like your dog's eyelid or something like that. You don't want to be sticking a pointy tweezer there necessarily, but pointy tweezers. And I think this is why they invented Ziploc bags. So they fold up into your pocket and you have some place to put the tick because now you've removed it. You don't necessarily know what it is, but you know that people have opportunities to identify it. So if you hold on to it for a little longer, you might want it identified, you might want it tested. Um, and so if you've just thrown it away or flushed it away because it grosses you out, 
then it's gone and you, you're left not necessarily knowing. So a pointy tweezer, you know, put the pointy tweezer in the Ziploc bag and make that part of your sort of kit sack of when you're going out like any place or maybe at least in the car when you get back. Um, and so if the mouth part breaks off that straw that's sticking into you, it's really not dangerous because the germs are back further. They're not in the mouth part necessarily, but they're back further. And so people get all kind of freaked out. I mean, I, you know, have seen, you know, they go into the emergency room and the doctor tries to excise them. You know, the last thing you want to do with a four-year-old is take them into the emergency room and then have somebody standing there with a scalpel or something, you know, cutting a little bit of skin. I mean, and it's not necessary. It just adds a lot of trauma. The, the mouth part will work itself out like a splinter, you know, hopefully. And so that those are just some simple, simple things to, to know and not to worry about. I have to tell you from the tick spotters crowdsourcing, you know, that is the number one fear that people have besides did my tick give me Lyme disease, but did I get the head out? And it's like, maybe you did, maybe you didn't those heads break off pretty easily because they're glued into the skin actually. So when the tick is not like a mosquito, it, once it finds a host, it doesn't want to lose that host until it's stolen all the blood it needs. And so when it sticks that mouse part into you, not only if you look at a close-up, they have their backward pointing barbs so that they can't pull out of the tissue, Ugh. but also they secrete in their saliva, a cement substance so that it binds with the, tissue so that they are not likely, you know, because you think of a host as busy scratching something that's itching it or something. So they don't want to lose the host. And then when they're full of blood, they then are signaled by stretch receptors in their stomachs to secrete something that dissolves that, that cement. Hmm. And so then they, then they can pull themselves out. It softens the backward pointing barbs and dissolves the cement. And then they just come right out. So people sometimes find an engorged tick walking on them and they're like, oh, I don't think I'm at risk. Well, mm, it was probably, <laughs> probably just are. feeding on you. And, you know, now it's walking on you, looking to get off of you and go find a place to grow or to lay eggs or whatever stage it is. So it's, there's a lot of little things like that from a, a tick biologist would, would be concerned about and love to impart this kind of knowledge on anybody that is an outsider that might encounter a tick so that they all are then able to think about how best to solve the problem. I've kind of reduced everything down to a few common denominators. And now we can start dealing with those things like let's get specific about the season of the year that this is all happening or products that are available to you to best prevent that. Um, or, you know, for instance, different stages of ticks. I talked about larvae. I talked about nymphs being the middle size and the adults. They, they actually are stratifying themselves across the landscape at different heights because they want to get on different hosts. And so, you know, one of the things that people think they know about ticks is that they fall on your head out of, you know, falling out of trees onto your head. And so that's just not true. Think about a little tiny tick with those tiny little legs. How is it going to walk up, you know, 15 feet up into the air on a tree trunk, climb across a branch? It has no eyes, by the way. And so then it's going to sense that's the right exact host that it wants is walking underneath that tree trunk. And what's it going to do? You know, it doesn't come with wind triangulation or anything like that. So it's just <laughs> going to take a leap of faith and jump Free off. Fall. And, if it, and if it misses, 
Got and it has all to over. do it all over again, right? <laughs> so ticks, biologically, the ones that did that were lost to evolution a long time ago. But instead, the ones that got exactly in the space that they know that their host, their preferred host is going to go and are exactly at the height that is the maximum exposure. So what's that mean? If you're, if it's a adult black-legged tick that wants to get on a deer, where, where are you thinking it's going to be? About Probably. knee height or oh, yeah. so on the vegetation. Edge habitat. I mean, exactly. white-tailed deer love edge habitat. Lots of, lots of your game species that we hunt love edge habitat. So where, where are you going to find the ticks? You're going to find them where yeah. you find the deer. And the nymphal stage of those ticks, they prefer to get on a mouse or a chipmunk. So would they crawl up a foot and a half or two feet high on the vegetation? No, because that's not likely to run into their preferred host there. So they're going to be just scattered around in the leaf litter. All the things that when you're sitting in the woods that are scurrying, that's what these nymphs and larvae are hoping to get on to. And so ticks have this all figured out. Um, Sounds know, like it. Interestingly disgusting little creatures, but they're very interesting. <laughs> so is it true that once you get Lyme disease, you have it forever? Well, what you have for a long time are the antibodies that respond to the Lyme disease. I mean, I had Lyme disease probably in 2002. And even within a week and a half of taking antibiotic treatment, maybe I was lucky. I don't want to make people feel jealous of my experience. <laughs> I ran a, you know, a sub six minute pace for a 10 mile race. You know, so people would be like, oh, geez, I couldn't have done that. I've gone on to run marathons and everything. So it's, I, I would say the answer to your question is no. In some people, I think that what happens, there's something called post-Lyme disease syndrome that may be not necessarily reflecting an active infection, but instead it's a little like we're talking about long COVID now. So there are other physiologic factors that come, a lot of them related to inflammation that are um, oh. debilitating. They can be quite debilitating, but I think the prognosis for most people with appropriate antibiotic therapy is that you'll, you'll be fine. But there are people that would probably say, but I'm not fine. And so, and for those people, I'm sorry, um, hopefully you're finding, you know, good, good solutions. And the takeaway is you don't know who those people are going to be beforehand. And the best thing is to prevent being bitten in the first place. That's right. Dr. Mather, I think we've learned what we can do and some of the things we can do to avoid ticks in the first place and hopefully repel them if they do get on us, if we're unable to avoid them. It sounds like you know more about ticks than ticks know about ticks. And if <laughs> I somebody, think have, you know, when I'm out collecting, I have a lot of time to think about this. And one thing that I notice for black-legged ticks, oftentimes there's 50 appropriate stems in the woods and yet there'll be five ticks on one and none on the other 49. And I'd like to figure out how they know that. Mm. They have to go to the forest floor to rehydrate. That's where the humidity is going to be the highest. They put salt solutions out onto their mouth parts and then moisture goes there and they're able to replenish their internal body water that way. But then the adult stage ticks want to get on one of those sticks and walk up. How does it know where that stick's going to go? Sounds I like mean, your next research project. There you go. I've thought about this and then, how is it that five more ticks have decided to go up that same stick? 
But when you think about it, it's amazingly effective because when they get onto a host, they modulate the host's anti-tick response with chemicals that are in their saliva. So they make the host a little bit immune compromised so that they can succeed in sucking blood, right? So they have anticoagulants. And if they all got on the same host, they can share that saliva and maximize the ability to take that a successful blood meal. So it's, it clearly is in their best interest to quest together. And in the case of black-legged ticks, they also mate on the vegetation. Other types of ticks all mate on the host, but a lot of times you find them already mating on the tips of the vegetation, really kind of streamlining the whole reproductive aspect mm-hmm. of the whole thing. Somebody in Hollywood could invent a, a really <laughs> awful villain or, or monster uh, and just base it off of a tick and just blow it up, make it, you know, about, <laughs> about the size of your dog and then it would rule the world. But yeah. it sure sounds uh, like it. Yeah, but if it was, if, then there would be a hunting season for them if it was the size of their dog. <laughs> That's <right>? true. <laughs> well, Dr. Mather, like I said, I, I mean, I, I know there's a lot more here to unpack, but hopefully this will be some manageable bites that people can take out into the field with them and prevent these tick bites from happening, care for them if, if they do happen. But if they want to get more information, especially if they want to go check out, you know, your resource on being able to identify ticks and, and really just dive deeper into this topic. I know you put out a bunch of content and have done a bunch of work on this. Where can people go online to get more information about tick bites, ticks in their area, the types of diseases they carry, how to avoid them, how to repel them, all the different things that that you guys study? We have a lot of great information. We call them tick smart actions on our tick encounter website. So just typing in tick encounters to your browser. You can scroll down when you get to the main page and find um, our tick spotters platform where you can submit your tick. But more recently, we've partnered with Insect Shield um, to make a series of videos where a lot of these topical things are done. And those are available both through our website, but also on a page that Insect Shield has sponsored called Equip for Ticks, Equip for Ticks. And these videos, I think, are, are a good starting point. They're short, you know, a minute, not like, you know, I've gone on and on here for a long time, but they basically share sort of our tick smart practices in a way that most people can can actually apply them. And so I, I'd say those resources are, are probably some of the most important ones that I can point people to. All right, Butch, what'd you learn, man? Man, there's a lot to unpack there. A uh, ton of education, a ton of knowledge from Dr. Mathers. One thing that I really picked up was apparently it's a thing. It's not a bad thing. You can just send a tick pit to a bunch of people and they can tell you what you got going on. <laughs> There's a whole group of people online that are looking to see these things. That's, that's something you got to be careful Googling now. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I couldn't help no it. I've been, wanting to, I've been wanting to say that the whole show, <laughs> but no joke, man, literally learned everything, pretty much everything from A to Z. You could tell the dude, Dr. Mather lived literally lived it, literally lived it like from, yeah. Yeah, that's a long, long time to be studying one thing. And I learned a ton, man. I, I'm not ashamed to say that I didn't know that those, you know, all of those tick types, and species and the different sure. geographic regions, and they're more susceptible to carry this in this region and this in that region and different seasons, man, there's a lot to it for sure. I think that um, 
just just avoid it. <laughs> do it. Right. He, exactly. Just, just yeah. don't get it on you pretty much. That's all. That's your only strategy, really. Yeah, we could sit there and talk about, I'm sure he could blow your mind for probably days on different facts about ticks. But the reality is that they carry stuff. Different ones carry different things. You don't want any of it. Avoiding them is the best way to prevent it. Repelling them is the best way to, you know, keep them off of you and keep them from biting you if you can't avoid them. Uh, and he gave us some great things, actionable steps we can take the very next time we go out in the field. But the other thing is, is like he was talking about the just in time um, yeah. information is that, you know, maybe you're listening to this and it doesn't really stick with you. Or, or the next time you, you know, you go out in the woods, maybe a week or a month or, uh, you know, a long right. time from now and you forget this thing. And Dr. Master was telling us off the air, like, if you ever want to get back to some of this information and try to recollect what we talked about here today, just Google the tick guy, yep. the tick guy, and this information will pop up and he'll put you on the right track to keep these little nasties off of you. Appreciate you joining us. We want to make it easy for you to listen. So here's a handy option for you to get the podcast emailed to you each week. Just text the word hunting to 773 770 4377. Again, just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. You'll join our email list and wherever you are listening to podcasts, go ahead, subscribe, rate, and review. Send us a written review. We'd love to hear from you. If you got a show topic that you are interested in and like to see us cover, just email us at pros at landhunting.com. That's going to do it for us. Y'all stay safe out there. We'll talk to you next time. This week's Huntland Show is brought to you by MB Ranch King. MB Ranch King hunting blinds and feeders are built to last right here in the USA. Call Kevin today for more information or quote at 205-807-2937. MB Ranch King, built in the pursuit of perfection. And also brought to you by Southern Seed and Feed. Do you want to provide better nutrients for your deer? Check out Southern Buck. Your deer will love it. Visit their website, southernseedfeed.com, to find the dealer nearest you. And also buy the Hunter's Mate Lowdown Trail Cam Reviewer. The Lowdown High Speed Trail Cam Viewer has flipping fast technology that allows you to view images three times faster on a screen that is 60% bigger than typical 7-inch viewers. Find out more at lowdownviewer.com. And also buy Bucks Island Marine. Bucks Island is a full-service facility that sells new and used boats and motors. Visit them at 4500 Highway 77, Southside, Alabama, or give them a call at 256-442-2588. And also brought to you by Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks are proud to be your metal roofing headquarters for over 40 years. Save time and money by buying from the most reliable manufacturer on the Gulf Coast. If you buy it today, you pick it up today. They offer 20 Sherwin-Williams colors to choose from and a 40-year warranty. Baker Metal and Dixie Supply, two names, same great service. With the addition of their new store in Cantonment, Florida, they now have eight locations to serve you. Dixie Supply and Baker Metal Works, your metal roofing headquarters. And also brought to you by Alabama Ag Credit. As the local experts in rural real estate financing, they can help you with everything from homes and land to tractors and crops. Learn more by visiting alabamaagcredit.com.